morning. We want to welcome you, of course, on this uh, beautiful, crisp and cold fall day. My name is Michael Labovich. I'm the lead pastor here at Grand Rapids Evangelical Free Church, and we are starting our new series today. So if you've been with us, uh, we just finished up our series in 2 Timothy last week, and now we are going way back into the Old Testament, into the book of Ezra. And so if you have your Bibles, please grab that, the book of Ezra. If you don't have a Bible, we have the little ESV pew Bibles up front. Um, I do know some folks have said that uh, because we'll be in the ESV every week, they might have to change translations because they've tried the Pew Bibles and they're very tiny. So, but the lights are up, so uh, you can read those Pew Bibles. But again, we're going to be in the book of Ezra. And as you're turning there this morning, of course, uh, I, and I don't know about you, but as I look to the calendar and every day that I see or every year that I see those numbers, September 11th, it triggers a lot of things in my heart. So obviously today is September 11th, and I don't think that that is arbitrary, uh, because today is an important day in our uh, modern or recent American history. Now, some of you may not have been alive on September 11th, 2001. I certainly was, and I remember it. I remember I was a junior in high school at the time, and I had actually just dumped all my stuff uh, in the band room. If I remember correctly, that was one of my first things in the morning, and so dumped all my stuff in the band room. And there was something on TV, and I literally just thought it was a movie or it was a show because it was just news, and they showed you know things uh, on fire and smoking, and and I honestly didn't think much of it. Um, I just kind of you know glanced at it, and there was always people who arrived there early in the morning and watched you know things on TV or put on the news and. And so I, I, I honestly didn't think much of it. Went back to the hallway, saw my friends, those sort of things, and then went back to class and suddenly realized that this was much more than just a random newsreel, that this was a moment that in many ways would affect and change our, our nation, not only for, for the several years uh, to follow, but really kind of permanently so. And so today, as it is the 21st, actually, anniversary now of September 11th, it is a time to remember, a time to remember a, a day of tragedy, very frankly, a day of attack, a day of honor, remembering those who not only died in the towers and those who died uh, in the rubble of it all, but also those who died in trying to rescue those and the towers, and the policemen and women, and the firemen men and women, and the EMTs, and all those who gave their lives sacrificially, sacrificially trying to save those in desperate need. It was a day uh, that will not be easily forgotten in American history, uh, but it was a day, honestly, that I think uh, came for several reasons, and, and one of those, I think, was very simple in this, that as America, as a nation, I think that we got to a point where we almost thought we were invincible. That I know certainly as a kid of the 80s that my generation really was kind of raised in this superpower world idea of America that we couldn't be touched. This kind of World War II, ever since World War II, that we were this superpower entity that, that really was invincible. And then all of a sudden when September 11th hit, my generation, I know those surrounding me, realized Oh, our, that we were so much more vulnerable than we ever thought we had been. 
and how prideful and arrogant that, that kind of as a nation we had been to think that we couldn't be touched. Now, again, if you were alive at that time, you know that immediately things started shutting down, uh, not as restrictive, certainly, as they got with COVID, <laughs> but, but restrictive, certainly. I mean, that's when uh, all of a sudden we started seeing armed guards in the airports, and, and, and there were some major restrictions put on travel, and all of a sudden then began the wars, the war on terror, the war in Afghanistan. And remember, as a high schooler, I, I was legitimately thinking that I was about to be drafted to go overseas. It was a scary time, and yet it was a time also where we just truly, as a nation, didn't know what was to happen next. We knew that we had been struck. We knew that we had been attacked. We knew that things, that, that literally uh, a, a, an icon of our country had been destroyed, and yet then the big question was, well, what now? And even in the decades since, the question has continued to remain uh, for our nation in many ways of what now? How do we rebuild? How do we go back to who we once were. And maybe you've been at this in your own life, where you have faced something in your life. Maybe it has come from pride and arrogance. Maybe it has come from a sense of you thinking that you could do it on your own, that you no longer needed God. Maybe you never even knew him in the first place, and you've lived your life, and you've made decisions based solely on the fact that you haven't gotten in trouble, based solely on the fact that everything, things for, for the most part, has been okay. You've been able to do things, things you do, even though you know, you know, maybe you were raised in the church, you've heard of God, and you know things that it's, he hasn't designed you to do, he wouldn't desire you to do, but you just frankly don't care. So you live the way you want to live your life, and, and as long as you know, have you heard the old expression that it's only illegal if you get caught, right? That's how we live our lives, too often. And we just continue on and on and on until we hit a rock bottom. And then sometimes then we don't even turn, and we hit another rock bottom, and another rock bottom, and another rock bottom. And the question is, how many rock bottoms do we have to hit till we finally humble ourselves and admit we need a Savior? We need to be restored. And that's exactly where we see the people of Israel here at the beginning of the book of Ezra. And so with that, let's pray, and then we'll jump into Ezra 1 here together this morning. And so, Father, we thank you that, Lord, that you do not leave us to ourselves to the end. Lord, that even when tragedy and terror strike, when consequence and discipline occur, Lord Jesus Christ, you are there. When we face the end of our own rope, when we fail and fall and things have been utterly ruined, Lord Jesus Christ, even then, you can make all things new. And Lord, we know that indeed you have and indeed you will. And Lord Jesus Christ, as we look here at the book of Ezra here today, as we start here in this next series, we ask, Lord, that you humble our hearts, that you cause us to confess where we have fallen short and eagerly need you to restore us. Lord, we pray that you cause us to hear your word Lord, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to understand. Lord, cause us to hear you, to know you, to be struck by you, and to love you all the more because of it. Lord Jesus Christ, we do love you, and we give this time to you. In your name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. All right, so Ezra 1, 
And we're only going to be in Ezra 1 here for just a quick second, and then we're going to go to Jeremiah 25 and 24. So uh, Ezra 1 simply says this, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord might, or that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. I'll say it again. Ezra 1, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. So what's going on here? What happened? So now we're going to jump back to Jeremiah 25 and 24. So if you have your Bibles, now zip forward to Jeremiah. Again, if you don't know where Jeremiah is, Jeremiah, you can look up the book of contents. Jeremiah is uh, one of the prophets uh, in the Old Testament. So it's in the Old Testament section. So go to Jeremiah, and we're going to go to 25. And in Jeremiah 25, here's what was going on. So before Israel was, of course, in Babylon, Israel was their own nation. Now, Israel had at one point been divided into two kingdoms. We had the northern kingdom, which fell in 722, a, or 722 BC, excuse me, 722 BC, that they uh, fell to the Assyrian Empire. And then in 586 BC, uh, Jerusalem would actually eventually fall. And what happened is, uh, and now actually BSF on Thursday nights is studying these divided kingdoms and these kingdoms as they split, this northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Now, the northern kingdom was always filled with wicked kings, always. And so then that's actually why they were destroyed first. In 722, and 10 of the 12 tribes primarily lived there, and I say primarily because there was also uh, this tribe, and it might have been nine and three, and here's why, because we had Levites. Levites were a tribe, and, uh, and if you know anything about Israel's history, the Levites were the ones that never actually had a land, because Levites were able to go all over. Levites were the ones who would become the priests in the temple. Levites were the ones who were in the descendants of Aaron and Moses. Levites were in that line, and so they never had an established land. But for the most part, uh, history tells us that there were the ten tribes up north and the two tribes down south, Benjamin and Judah. Now in 722, those northern tribes wiped out. And then Benjamin and Judah were back and forth. Sometimes they had good kings, sometimes they had bad kings. Sometimes they were good, like Josiah, and sometimes they were not so good, like his four sons who would follow. In fact, Josiah was the last good king of Israel, and then he had these four sons. Their names Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah. And actually, they were sons of sons, and, and it kind of goes on. But the reason why we're going there and the reason why we're talking about it is because something very important happened to the people of Judah. They lost the promised land, the land that they arrogantly thought that they could never lose because they were God's people. This was God's promised land that no matter how bad things got, God would never get rid of them and he would never get rid of the promised land. They were so bought onto the promises of God, which were true, and yet, they took advantage of his grace. And they thought that they could stay and remain and really, frankly, live however they wanted to live and do whatever they wanted to do, and everything was going to be just fine. No matter how many prophets told them otherwise, no matter how many people God sent to them, they didn't heed his warnings. In Jeremiah 25, God says this through Jeremiah. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. For 23 years, this is Jeremiah speaking, for 23 years, 
From the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent you all his servants, the prophets, saying, turn now, every one of you, from their evil way and evil deeds, dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers from old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve them and worship them or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm, but yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. And here's what happened, verse 8. Therefore, says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declared the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, now remember, the king of Babylon did not actually, he was not the servant of God in terms of he giving his life to God. He was a servant of God in terms of God using this pagan king to do his will. I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones, and the light of the lamp. This whole land should become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Verse 12. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. And now, actually, if you go to chapter 24, and the reason I go in this order, because chronologically, even though it's in 24-25, the way it was actually written was 25 came first. So in chapter 24, there's another promise that God says, 24, and this is a few years after 25's prophecy. 24, Jeremiah says this, After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken into exile from Jerusalem, Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, the son of Judah, together with the officials, the craftsmen, the metal workers, and brought them to Babylon, the Lord showed me this vision. Behold, two baskets of figs placed before the temple of the Lord. One basket had good figs. One basket had bad figs. God said, Jeremiah, verse 3, what do you see? And I said, figs. <laughs> the good figs are very good. The bad figs are very bad. So bad that they cannot be eaten. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. You see, even in God's judgment against Israel, even against God's judgment against Judah, and by the way, God will eventually judge all nations, but notice he starts here with his people. He started with Jerusalem. He started with Judah. He started with them saying, I have made you to be a nation of priests. I have made you to be a nation of intercessors showing the world who I am. And instead, you have worshipped all these other pagan gods. And now I finally, I am a God who is long-suffering. I am a God who is gracious and compassionate. And yet, I am a God of justice. Jerusalem, Israel, you must finally be given over. And yet, there will be a remnant. 
There will be a remaining few that I will take in captivity on purpose to Babylon. And there for 70 years they shall wait until my good, pleasing, and perfect will be done in them. And now we go back to Ezra 1. The first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. And we're reminded that this, God is a God of promise. God keeps his promises. When he gives a promise for destruction, when he gives a promise for punishment, when he gives a promise of saying, don't do this, it won't end well, he fulfills that. He's a God of justice. He makes sure that sin will not go unpunished and that things will not go away, and yet God also gives promised restoration. God is a God of promise. He says that this will not be the end. In fact, there will be a remnant that will come back. And so here Ezra starts on this beautiful word of hope that finally the 70 years is done. That the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Now you might be wondering, well, what happened to Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon? Well, the Chaldeans, so Babylon, by the way, is the city that has changed, that changed hands many, many times. So the Chaldeans, of course, had, had owned it and had operation of it for a long time, but they were destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar was destroyed, and so Babylon, the city, was still there, but now it was part of the Persian Empire. So Cyrus had taken in, he had taken over, and in doing so, he was stirred by God's Spirit. Now again, just like Nebuchadnezzar, that sadly doesn't mean that Cyrus knew God or was really giving himself over to God. Look here at verses 2 through, or actually just verse 2, starting. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Now, I want to, again, point out here, yes, this is a big move, and yes, this is an important thing that Cyrus is doing, but history actually tells us that Cyrus did this for a lot of kingdoms. This was actually a political move, that when Cyrus took over Babylon, Babylon had taken captive a lot of nations who had a lot of little g gods. And so this was actually something that Cyrus had been doing and would continue to do, frankly, to gain good favor with people. That Babylon was the bad guy, but I'm the good guy. And here's how I'm going to show you I'm a good guy. I'm going to give you back your nations. I'm going to give you back your little g gods. And I'm going to build them houses. Now here's the reality though. Though Cyrus did not know God, and though Cyrus was a non-believer, and though Cyrus had political moves and political aims, God is God. God was over Cyrus even, just as he was over Nebuchadnezzar. God is sovereign over all of this, and we see God here nonetheless working in Cyrus. Yes, he had political aims. Yes, his aims weren't holy or good per se, and yet God was still sovereign over them all to use Cyrus and his proclamation that his good, pleasing, and perfect will would occur. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. You see, a problem there is that Cyrus still thought that gods, little g gods, were places where they would be. That these gods, oh, they lived in this temple, this god lived in this temple, this god lived in this temple. And even though he called God the God of heaven, he still even says, well, yeah, but his house where he lives is in Jerusalem. Now, we know that's not true. 
we know that Cyrus was still falling short. And yet that was enough for God to use in Cyrus's mind to restore God's people and give a call to rebuild. Verse 3, whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, beside freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers, houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And here we see this beautiful call that God uses Cyrus, he uses this non-believing king to make a proclamation, and the believers hear it. The believers are arrested in their heart and soul. God stirs them up. I love verse 4 where it says again, let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And verse 5, then rose up. God spoke to their hearts, and they responded. You see, it would have been so easy for them, now that it had been 70 years, they could settle. They could wait. They could stay. They could just rest in Babylon and be okay. And yet God had moved their hearts to bring them back. Now Babylon and Judah were not close to each other by any means, shape, or form. And yet God stirred their hearts to go back. There were many ways that they didn't even know if they could trust Cyrus's proclamation. And yet they trusted God above him. And so they rose up. And they led their houses to do the same. And in doing so, not only did they respond to God stirring their hearts, but they responded with their very lives, with their stuff. Look at verse 6 through 11. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Now those that were about them, this could be Jerusalem, this could be, or this could be the Jews, these could be the people of Israel. Uh, most likely it's not though, most likely it is actually uh, the people in Babylon. Those that were surrounding, when it says that those were about them, clearly there's kind of this distinction between the people of Israel and everybody else. And so here we actually even have more non-believers. We have pagan Babylon, uh, Babylonians giving to the cause. So those were that about them gave to this cause, aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. People began to be stirred by God's Spirit, and they gave up what they had, literally, and then verse 7, Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. This was a common practice when someone would conquer, and Nebuchadnezzar did this often, when he would conquer a nation, any nation, by the way, not just Israel, when he would conquer nations, he would go into those temples, he would take their idols, and then he would come in and he would put it in his temple and, and put it before the feet of Marduk and say, this God has ruled. This God is over all the other gods. But when he came into the temple in Jerusalem, there were no idols. There were no statues. There were no figures for him to grab. And so what he took were vessels. He took pots and bowls and plates of honor and all those sorts of things and these big sisters and everything that was used for the sacrifices. And he took all of those things because there were no idols to grab inside. So he took all these vessels 
And he brought them back to Babylon. But verse 8, Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them. Now, there's going to be a lot of numbers here coming up at the end of 1 and chapter 2. I just want to point out, numbers are important in the Bible. We're not going to get into the, the deep nitty-gritty of them, but these are fun things to actually explore. And you might think, oh, I hate math. Why would I do this? But there's an entire book of numbers, right? It's called Numbers. Right? Numbers are important in scriptures. Numbers are important in the Bible. And so, and, and, and a lot of times people then rip through, they say, oh, you know, this math and this math and this number doesn't add up. The point is not actually the specific numbers all the time. The point is the magnitude of what is going on. Look at what happens here, verse 9. This all had been counted out. 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400, which, by the way, that math doesn't add up. So I'm just pointing that out there. Sometimes, the, so the Bible is still inerrant, but sometimes math and numbers, okay, they get there. Anyway, all these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. And now look at what happens. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now, these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles from Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried off captive to Babylonia. You see, he starts with vessels. They start with stuff. Nebuchadnezzar took stuff, and now Cyrus is bringing the stuff back. But Nebuchadnezzar also took a people, and now he's letting the people come back. And we see God is restoring not just stuff, God didn't actually, even though God had called him, we'll see that there is obviously importance in the temple and there is obviously importance in rebuilding Jerusalem. That rebuilding wasn't the only thing God was doing here. He was not just rebuilding stuff. He was restoring his very people. Verse 2. They came with Zerubbabel, Yeshua, Nehemiah, Zariah, Relahiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigva, Rehum, and Bana, the number of the men of the people of Israel. Now, I'm not going to go, again, through every name here, but it's important to point out here this last point, that those God calls out, they go out, and they give to fulfill his promises. You see, this entire chapter 2 isolates some very specific groups of people. First, there's the people of Israel. That is, the people of Judah and Benjamin, right? So these are the tribes that were left, and it's important, and these numbers are important because he goes through and counts out who people belonged to in their tribe. Now, why, why is this important in our modern day? Well, honestly, this is a great indication, and this is a great parallel to church membership, to members of the church, of the family of God, of the people of God, knowing who they belong to. And this isn't a thing to take pride in. This isn't a thing to say, as Paul makes very clear, well, I'm of Apollos. Well, I'm of Paul. Well, I'm of Peter. Well, I'm of Grace Bible Chapel. Well, I'm of Full Gospel Chapel. Well, I'm of GREFC. That's not the point here is to take pride in those things. But it is still important to identify and know where is your local community? Where do you worship? Who do you belong to? In that sense, overall looking at that, we all ultimately are the people of God here gathered together. So the number of men of the people of Israel, and then he goes through these numbers. Then verse 36, after he covers everybody else and just kind of the general populace of Benjamin and Judah who are left, he then goes into the Levites. The priests, the son of Jediah, 
of the house of Yeshua, 973, the sons of Emmer, the sons of Pashur, the sons of Harem, verse 40, the Levites. Now, you might, again, remember here, if you know a little bit of history of Israel, so the Levite tribe had priests, but then also the Levites, uh, who might not be the priests in the temple, and certainly not the high priests, these Levites still had a job, and that job was to help everything else happen in terms of worship. The Levites, the son of Yeshua, Camille, the singers, the son of Asaph. And by the way, if you read Psalms, you're going to find Asaph. You might wonder, who's Asaph? Asaph was the worship leader of Israel during David's time. David wrote them, Asaph sang them. That's how it operated. We oftentimes think that David led worship. David was king. He wrote the worship. He wrote the songs. Certainly, he was a man of worship himself. But actually, Asaph was the one leading the people of God in the worship of God. And so now these are men who were descended from him to do exactly that same task. Continuing on, verse 43, we then look at the temple servants. Then all the way to verse 40, or to verse 58, or verse 55, actually, we go to the sons of Solomon's servants, and then to 58, all the temple servants. And the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. This is important because they are going to rebuild the temple. And God actually literally provided in his promise that it wasn't just going to be Benjamin and Judah. Could you imagine when Benjamin and Judah left and they thought, well, now we have no Levites. We're the only two remaining. I bet you they were very excited to learn and hear, oh, actually, there are some priests left. And in fact, there are some temple servants left. There are some of Solomon's servants left. So when God rebuilds the temple, you will not be left alone. Verse 58, all those temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. And then we see a fascinating clause in verses 59 all the way through 63, and that is these undocumented exiles. There are these people in the people of Israel who couldn't prove they were the people of Israel. These people in the people of Israel who had lost connection with who they were. And when they got then into that part Literally, if we look all the way down to verse 63, the governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until there should be a priest to consult Urim and Thummim. And by the way, when that would occur is when there was a high priest and a temple. So they had to wait till the temple was built and the high priestly order was reestablished and only then could they actually perhaps be restored. And yet, what a, what a cool thing that these people, though they were undocumented, though they couldn't prove it, God had still nonetheless stirred their hearts, and so they were willing to go be a part of this process, even if that meant that they had to wait. And yet for us, how often is public worship and coming to commune with the body of God, it's not something we would wait for. It's inconvenient to us oftentimes. We skip church because we're bored on a Sunday morning or we want to sleep in or things have been exhausting. Wednesday nights, life gets busy and we don't want to come and commune. We don't want to be with the fellowship. We don't want to be with the people of God and we certainly don't want to deal with anyone and and get out of our house. Especially here in Grand Rapids, of course, in wintertime, when the snow comes, the temptation is even more. Today it was pretty cold this morning. The temptation is more to just stay and not go out and not be with people and hide. And yet, look at what here these people were doing, even as they were told, listen, you can come with us, but you're not going to be included in the body of people, in the body of God, until we're able to go through these processes. And they said, fine. Because they cared that much about being considered a part of the people of God. Do we 
Do we care that much about seeing God move and draw us together? And here in verse 64, look at this summary of that whole chapter. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, 200 male and female singers, 736 horses, 245 mules, 6,720 donkeys, some of the heads of the families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, they made their freewill offerings for the house of God to erect on its site. You see, all these numbers come together, and then the heads of these houses that had led their people all the way from Babylon to Jerusalem, the very first thing they do when they come, they put freewill offerings on the site of where God's temple would be rebuilt. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priests' garments. Why would they bring clothes? Why would they throw clothes? Obviously, they can't use the clothes to, to rebuild the altar. I mean, these clothes were expensive. The priest's garments were not cheap. But why would they bring them? Because, again, it was an offering showing that they're going to be the people of God, there to worship God in the manner that God has decreed. And so they were willing to travel all that distance from Babylon back to Jerusalem and lay themselves literally on the altar and saying, Lord, we are yours. Here's our stuff. Here's our people. Here's our worship. Verse 70, And now the priests, the Levites, some of the peoples, the singers, the gatekeepers, the temple servants lived in their towns and all the rest of Israel in their towns. They settled. Can you imagine that? 70 years of exile, 70 years of having no true home. And now finally, God had brought them back to this kind of mini idea of the promised land that they could rest and return in him. And all of this, by the way, points to the New Testament and the ultimate restoration that we will have. You see, Jesus Christ is the ultimate one who restores and calls. In the book of John, in John chapter 10, Jesus says this about what's going to happen someday and his people. He says this, John 10, verse 14. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and yet I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. See, fast forwarding all the way to Jesus Christ, Jesus is the ultimate one who calls the ultimate exiles, those who have been cast out, those who have been destroyed, those who have been scattered, to return to him, to return to the people of God, the body of God, with Jesus Christ as our head and shepherd. Not Yeshua, not Zerubbabel, not all these leaders, not even Ezra and Nehemiah, as we will see later on in the book in our study, but Jesus Christ, God himself, to restore his people once and for all and forever. And so God is stirring us. Perfectly, God has stirred you. And the question is, how will you respond when God stirs you? Will you respond to the Lord as he stirs your spirit? He stirred Cyrus, who didn't even believe in him. How is God moving your heart? Is God speaking to you? How is God telling you and charging you in your life? And are you telling him to shut up? Or are you listening? 
And only you honestly know the difference. But I, I promise you that you do because I know I have every time in my life. That when I know what God is calling me to do and I'm going, mm, no, 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 no. And I talk to myself, man, how easily we talk ourselves out of following the Spirit of God. And yet when God is convicting your heart, when he's stirring your heart, I urge you, follow. Follow what he is urging you and stirring you to do. Will you give up everything that he stirs your spirit to give? Look at what Israel did here. As Cyrus made that decree and they listened to God, they gave all of their stuff. Even people who didn't believe in God gave their stuff. And yes, that means that God literally does want and challenges us with our stuff, our houses, our finances, our things. God asks, are we using it to worship him, to respond to him, or are we holding on to it ourselves and we're refusing to give it back to him? God says ultimately it's his. Much like the vessels that were taken away and brought back, God knows that the things we have ultimately, we know that it's not ours. In the first place, it's God's. So what are you doing with your stuff? Are you willing to give it up and give that back to him to rebuild and restore his people? And that ultimately, of course, is the last and final question. Will you follow his heart to rebuild and restore? Again, the call here is to rebuild the temple. And we're going to see that actually as we study Ezra and then we'll break for Advent and then we'll get into the book of Nehemiah. And scholars have kind of pointed out and we see actually this, this thrust happen in, in Ezra that, that we see the, the temple being rebuilding, and then from Ezra 1 to 6, we see the temple. From Ezra uh, 7, 8, 9, and 10, we see God restoring his law and his worship and how his people operate. And then in the book of Nehemiah, we literally see the city and the wall being rebuilt. And so there's obviously things to be rebuilt. And obviously this could be used as a lesson and, and taught us how, how are we actually building the kingdom of God here on earth. But it's much more than an earthly kingdom. Because God is restoring his people. So it's not just stuff, it's us. It's who we are. And the question is, are you committed to building God's kingdom, not just in an earthly sense, but are you committed to building his kingdom in his people? To being a part of a covenant community, being a part of a local church, whether it's this church or any other church here in town, being a part of a local church, saying, count me in your numbers, I am one of you, you are one of me, and we are committed to the Lord to be rebuilt and restored. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the word of restoration that you give through Ezra, fulfilling the, fulfillment, or fulfilling the promise here that you gave through Jeremiah, and that, Lord, that we can hold to those promises that you are a God of promise, that if we face a dead end of our, in our life, if we face destruction and death, if we face consequence and pain, Lord Jesus Christ, that it is not the end. Lord Jesus Christ, you bring life. You bring love. You bring hope. As you say in your word that this is love, not that we have loved you, but that you loved us first and sent your son to be a propitiation for our sins. Lord Jesus Christ, you have redeemed us and you have called us to come to you as exiles returning to rebuild and be restored, not just individually, but as a people, your people, together. So Lord God Almighty, I pray and ask that you cause us to be your people, 
that you cause us to get serious about listening to you and responding to the ways that you stir us. To get serious about laying before you all the stuff in our lives, all the things that you're calling us to give, Lord, as we get serious about being a part of your people and joining with the other who believe in you, Lord, to rebuild and restore this world. In your name, Jesus Christ, by you alone, we give you all honor and worship and praise. We love you, Lord, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Again, we encourage you here in the weeks to come as fall. We have a lot of things launching and upcoming, and so we encourage you, pay attention, come, join us, be a part of our community here, be a part of this family and body, and if you would like prayer after the service, we invite you to come forward. I, myself, and any of the elders and staff willing to come up, we'll be praying with you, but now please receive the benediction. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord ever turn his countenance upon you and give you his peace. May the Lord stir your heart to fulfill the promises that he has made. May the Lord cause you to know him, to love him, to give everything up back to him. And in knowing him, may you serve him and follow him to rebuild his kingdom and restore his people. Go in peace, serve the Lord. Thanks be to God.